We are in uh, the Revelation. We are in the uh, second portion. The Revelation um, divides itself into three different sections. Uh, the first section would be chapter 1, the things that uh, you have seen. Chapters 2 and 3 are the second section, the, the things that are. And these are the seven letters to the seven churches. And then section 3 would be chapters 4 and on, which are things that will take place after this. We are right now looking at Jesus' letter to that third church, Pergamos. It's found in Revelation chapter 2, verses 12 through 17. Hear now the word of God. And to the angel of the church in Pergamos write, These things, says he who has the sharp two-edged sword, I know your works and where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. And you hold fast to my name and did not deny my faith, even in the days in which Antipas, my faithful martyr, who was killed among you, where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you, because you have there those who hold to the doctrine of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the children of Israel, to eat things sacrificed to idols, and to commit sexual immorality. Thus you also have those who hold to the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, which thing I hate. Repent, or else I will come to you quickly and will fight against you with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give some of the hidden manna to eat, and I will give him a white stone, and on the stone a new name written, which no one knows except him who receives it. Thus far the reading of God's word. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we do pray that we would take heed to this counsel given by our Savior to this church. We do pray, Father, that you would help us to be introspective and to examine ourselves as a church, that we might continually repent when we are found wanting, when we are found short, when we are moving in a wrong direction. So we do pray that by your word and your spirit, you would grant us the wisdom to know these things, that the name of Christ might ever be lifted up, that people might re be redeemed, and that your name, Father, glorified throughout the earth for all eternity. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I'm often asked the question, when do I know it's time for me to leave my church. Now, I think leaving a church is a serious business. I don't, I don't think we should approach leaving the church the way we choose to change grocery stores or, you know, who's cutting our hair or what have you. I think there is a very defined relationship, and I think picking a church and leaving a church should be very serious business, and I'll tell you, that is not an easy question to answer when people say, when is it time for me to leave my church? It is a common practice for me on Sundays when I'm not at our own church for me to go and worship at other congregations. It's something I do. I go to other churches and worship with them, usually in our community. And it's also very common for me not to agree with many of the things I see and here at the churches where I go to worship. That just happens. It's, uh, let me just tell you, that happens here. I mean, I'll hear people say things here, and I'm like, I don't know if I'm on board with that. At the same time, and I hope you follow this, we need to be careful not to be so arrogant to refuse to worship with somebody because they have not reached a sufficient level of maturity. I wouldn't want people to do that with me. I, I'm most assuredly, there are people who could walk into our church and kind of look at the way things are functioning and be so mature as to recognize that we're falling short. I would want them to be forbearing. I would want them to be patient. And I think we should be as well. And I think Jesus was that way. I'm not just saying this because it seems to be the need of the moment. I think Jesus was forbearing. He was patient with those who had not yet reached a certain level of maturity. We read in John 16, 12, and he's giving advice to his followers. He says, I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. You're just not ready now. And I realized that the context of this had to do with the coming of the Holy Spirit, 
nonetheless, he assessed his audience and recognized they're not ready to hear certain things. And so I'm going to hold back on those things until I think they are ready. The blind man, healed by Jesus in John chapter 9, didn't even know that Jesus was sinless. He's being interviewed, and they're like, oh, and this man's a sinner. And he says, I don't know. Maybe he is, maybe he isn't. I don't know if he's a sinner, right? But what does he say? But this I do know. I was blind, and now I can see. You see, this blind man displayed faithfulness within the boundaries of his capacity. He knew what he didn't know. I don't know the answer to that question, but here's what I do know. And he was willing to kind of face the music in a very imposing situation. Of course, if you continue to read that story, when Jesus found him, he was very anxious to learn more. It wasn't as if when Jesus found him later, he's like, hey, leave me alone. I know everything I need to know. Didn't you see me beat those guys in this big debate? No. He's like, who is he that I might follow him, that I may learn of him? And Jesus began to instruct this blind man. And this is really, I think, the question. And that is, when somebody says, should I leave my church? My real question is not so much, where are they doctrinally? I mean, it is somewhat. Like, where, where is your church? What do they believe? What I really want to know, especially if it's a, you know, a, a Christian church, is what direction is your church taking? Are they moving in the right direction? Will they be like the blind man who, when Jesus approaches him, is all ears to hear what Jesus has to say? I have to tell you, I think the same way about a potential spouse for my own children. I think that way about a potential spouse for those of you in this church who are not yet married. And I meet somebody that you're seeing. You know, are they boilerplate, reformed, Westminster confession, post-millennial, theonomic, presuppositional... Are they everything that I hope they would be? That is not really my main concern. My main concern is, are they humble before the Word of God? Are they humble before God? Are they instructable? Are we all instructable? Are we moving in the right direction? I think is the big question that needs to be asked. Now, I open with that because as I studied this passage, what really struck me in this passage, this letter a letter where Jesus commends the church for their courage in the midst of persecution is that Jesus himself threatens to fight against that very church with the sword of his mouth. Even an otherwise faithful church has vulnerabilities, right? chinks in our armor, and if we fail to repent, we may find ourselves on the receiving end of the judgments of Christ. That is what this church heard, this church at Pergamos. Let's talk a little bit about this church at Pergamos. As we follow, you know, the Revelation, we are looking at a postal route. It's kind of a, a horseshoe, and we at Pergamos, you know, we had Ephesus and Smyrna as we were moving up. Pergamos is the furthest north church. And um, it wasn't the commercial center that Ephesus was and that Smyrna was, but it was highly political and it was very religious. It was replete with altars and edifices and paintings to pagan gods. So if you went there, that's what you would see. It had a huge library, 200,000 volume library. Interestingly enough, that library was removed by Anthony and given as a gift to Cleopatra. It ended up in the Alexandrian library, and all of that eventually was destroyed. But that was the nature of this city. Well-educated people, religious people, political people. The very name of the city, Pergamos, is cognate with parchment, because Egypt refused to import papyrus, which is what they wrote on, and so in Pergamos, they invented parchment, which was an animal skin that they would write on so they could continue to, to write their literature. This is what was happening there. And also, through a series of political maneuvers and conniving, what happened over the centuries, we don't have time to get into the detail now, but just get a feel for what the city was like, was that not only all the property 
in Pergamus, but all the real estate in Pergamus was eventually bequeathed to Rome. So Rome owned it all. Naturally, we could see why it would be a political city, why it would be kind of a city of pagan gods. It was also known as the city of political fornication. What an appropriate title for that city. Not ours, of course. It was a center also, and this will come in a lot in the future, of the imperial cult. If you wanted to show your patriotism in Pergamos, you were, if you wanted to really, by the way, and you needed to demonstrate outwardly your patriotism if you wanted to buy, if you wanted to sell, and if you wanted to function in society, you needed to worship Caesar. He didn't want just your hand labor. He wanted your head. He wanted your heart. There had to be a wholesale allegiance and acquiescence to the political structure that was in charge if you wanted to function in society. Well, verse 12. <clears throat> and to the angel of the church at Pergamos write, these things says he who has the sharp two-edged sword. Now, as the angel, and we talked about how the angel is very likely the pastor of the church, meditates upon the words that Christ is giving him to bring to the congregation the designation out of chapter 1 by which Jesus is identified is the two-edged sword. So that is what is in the mind, or at least to be brought into the mind of the pastor as he begins to share with that congregation. By the way, it is the very sword that Jesus will threaten to bring to that church if they don't repent. Well, what is that sword? Well, it should be obvious, I think, to most of us that the sword is the Word of God. The Apostle Paul in Ephesians 6.17 writes, And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Yeah, we're, we're behind on that. Um, yes, there we go. The Word of God is, I, you know, my notes say like the truth itself, but I would say it is the truth. But I say that this way because we need to recognize that truth will either deliver us or it will judge us. Truth divides. It is the nature of truth to be divisive. And you will either be on the right side of truth or you will be on the wrong side of truth. Truth isn't going away. Truth isn't going, well, look, you've made a pretty good argument. I guess I give in. No, truth is something that is eternal. Jesus identified himself as truth. I am the truth, right? And it is that truth that will set you free or it is that truth that will, in fact, judge you. So if your church, and now keep in mind, this is the pastor of this church talking to his congregation that's in a compromising situation. If your church, and I think this applies throughout history, is not seeking to responsibly, and the word I'll use is exegete, I know that's a big word, but that word exegete means to interpret the Bible, to read the Bible, to understand the Bible, to present the scriptures, if your church is not seeking to responsibly exegete the scriptures and surrender itself to it, the word of God, it will eventually find that it is not a church at all. We read that earlier. In fact, it will be on the receiving end of the judgment of God. Interestingly enough, also, just to push this a little further, the sword, and this would very much apply at Pergamos, and it applies throughout the world today. The sword was used in the Bible to symbolize government. Now, we, we, we tend to leave that way in the background, but I know in China they don't. I know in places in the world today where the government has a heavy hand upon the church, they recognize that God has given the sword to the civil magistrate, and the civil magistrate, the government, 
the president, the governor, the mayors, everybody, should yield to the word of God. We read in Romans 13, 4, talking about the civil magistrate, for he is God's minister. That's why you see in a lot of places, you know, you'll see still the term, the, minister, the prime minister, right? For he is God's minister to you for good. But if you do evil, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain, for he is God's minister and avenger to execute wrath on him who practices evil. So the sword was used to symbolize the authority of the civil magistrate in the civil political arena. Let me just simply state it this way, that the civil authorities, the governing authorities, should use the sword of God's word to determine when and how to administer the sword of God's justice. God has given us both those swords. One is his word, the other is the civil justice, and they need to be connected. And when they are not connected, the failure to do that has resulted in the demise of many a nation. And as I said last week, the 20th century was a bloodbath of leaders who refused to bow the knee before the word of God. And hundreds of millions of people were dead as a result. Verse 13, I know your works and where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, and you hold fast to my name and did not deny my faith, even in the days in which Antipas was my faithful martyr who was killed among you where Satan dwells. Well, this commendation, and you know there's a pattern, right, where he identifies himself, and now we have here this commendation, this, this is approving words of Christ, <clears throat> is based in part on their difficult environment. So he knows what they're surrounded by, where Satan's throne is, and where Satan dwells. So he says it twice. Now, the fact that he says where Satan's throne is and where Satan dwells tells us that Satan, and if you have the notes, there's a big mistake in the notes here. I left a word out that makes the sentence mean just the opposite of what I meant for it to mean. So add this word, the word not. Where Satan dwells tells us that Satan is not merely a resident where he dwells, but he is ruling. It is where his throne is. Right? So this is the environment. Satan is in control of your environment, is what Jesus is saying. But let me ask you this. How do we square that with chapter 1, verse 5, where we've been told that Jesus is the ruler of the kings of the earth. Who's in charge here anyway? Is it Satan or is it Jesus? I think that's very important. I mean, I don't think it's very difficult for us to work this out, but I do believe we live in a culture that's really got this wrong. Right? I, think there's a, I think the answer is not terribly difficult. And I'll put it this way. The fact that at the time of John's writing, the whole world lay under the sway of the wicked one. We read that in 1 John 5.19. So the whole world lay under the sway of the devil when John was writing in the first century. Or that Satan, as Paul will write in 2 Corinthians 4.4, is the God of this age. We read that. Those passages don't make Satan God. The fact that Paul says he's the God of this age, and I'll put small g there, doesn't make him God, capital G. You see, a person can choose to make their porch swing their God. Right? But that doesn't make their porch swing God. It's just their God. And the fact that in the first century, the political leaders had made Satan their God and were governing in a manner consistent with the mind of the devil doesn't make Satan God. He's just their God. Now, there's one true God, but there are many false gods. So we need to understand that when the Bible talks about Satan as the God of this age, that doesn't make him God himself. There is one God who governs all things, and he governs Satan himself. And that needs to be squarely put in our minds. 
I mean, we talked about this in more detail last week, so I won't get in it, into it now, but if I were to ask you, whose, whose plan was the cross? I mean, did not Satan enter Judas to betray Jesus? Wasn't, wasn't the cross the plan of the devil? Yes. But whose plan was it really? It was the plan of God. And the fact that God would use the wickedness of the devil for his own plan brings our mind to a new level of understanding the godhood of God, which I think most of us fall way short of, and by the way, we ever will. But let us appreciate this and beware, because he's not just, Jesus isn't just saying this, you know, to, to mute, for us to muse. An environment governed by Satan, where Satan's throne is, will be an environment hostile to the church and hostile to the truth. This is where that goes. I think it's a mistake, and I'm kind of getting very close to home here, because this is in Reformed circles right now. Reformed circles, for those who don't know, that's kind of where I am. I'm, I'm Reformed, and I, not to get into a big definition of what that is, but that's kind of the way I understand the Scriptures in terms of the sovereignty of God and the grace of God. But it's a, a very big deal right now in Reformed circles to think that the world somehow consists of a, quote, common kingdom along with Christ's kingdom that can mutually and peacefully coexist. We've got Christ's kingdom, which is kind of through the church, and then we've got the world, which is this common kingdom. That's, I have to tell you, I don't see that in the scriptures at all. I see a kingdom that is hostile toward Christ's kingdom. That's what we're looking at here. It is where Satan's throne is. That's not a common kingdom. That's a dark kingdom. I mean, how many times do we have to see this experiment fail before we recognize that the world is going to be hostile to the truth? And when I say experiment, I'm not talking about just historical experiments. I'm talking about in the scriptures. In the, during the time of Noah, we saw where the world would go when it utterly and abjectly rejected the preaching of Noah. They went to a place of such abject evil that God's response was to do what? Judge the whole earth. That's where, that is where the world naturally goes. They don't engage in some type of mutual equity where we're going to kind of like, we'll make it work and we're going to watch out for you. No. We have to be aware of the direction that the world will take. The hope of the nations is to bow the knee to Christ. The hope of the nations is to trust in his sacrifice. The hope of the nations is to yield to his wisdom. Now, at some level, the church at Pergamos seemed to know this, and it cost them. Pergamus was the first city in Asia Minor to actually demand emperor worship for commercial and economic rights. Basically, they're kind of going, if you do not, and we'll get to this later, if you do not yield to Caesar, then you can't buy, you can't sell, you will not be able to function within our society. Antipas, Christ's faithful martyr, that word, some of your versions will say witness, which in the Greek is the word martyr, which came to be known as what somebody who died for the faith was called. We see this with Antipas. Um, he'd already been killed. So he's already in an environment where not yielding had cost him his life. It is really kind of an amazing thing that Jesus would call a person my faithful witness, which, by the way, is a designation for Christ himself. And so we, we've got this person kind of held up as somebody who Christ is honoring with his words. The heart, we talked about Satan's throne. Let me tell you, the heart of Satan's throne, the heart of his dwelling, this came up in Q&A last week, like, Pastor Paul, where's Satan's throne now? Okay, but let me just tell you where the apex, if you were to say, well, what's the climax? What is, what is ground zero of Satan's throne is likely emperor worship. If you were to go pick the one thing that really exemplifies what it means to be existing where Satan's throne is, is emperor worship. 
This is the one reason why um, I think we should pause when we see in political circles big pictures of people. Um, we see this you know, in the Middle East a lot, but we're seeing it more in America now, that, that our political hope is a big picture of some guy's face. That, my friends, is a dangerous road to take. Your, your hope is not in some person who can somehow politically deliver you from your current circumstances. It is the nature of governments to become beasts. That's the direction the government, apart from Christ, will naturally take. Now, when we get to chapters 12 and 13, we're going to learn that the religious and political environment, so often in most of the books you read about the end of the world assigned to that which is going to happen prior to the second coming, you know, you know the, the famous books, right? The Left Behind and all this. They're all talking about, you know, the beast and the mark and all this stuff. Let me tell you, what Antipas was dealing with, what they were dealing with with Pergamos, the beastliness of the government was already there. They were dealing with it then. Now, it comes and goes throughout the course of history, but we need to understand the Bible as it is written, and that's what they're dealing with. They're dealing with a political government that had reached a level of beastliness. And as I said a minute ago, that is where governments go if left unchecked. If they, if they will not yield to Christ, there's one other alternative, and that is they become the throne of Satan. I know that sounds very dramatic, but that is biblically where it is, and those of you who've been watching the world recognize that it's not dramatic at all. It's simply realistic. Well, this is the environment where Antipas was killed, and we learned in chapter 2, verse 10, that more would die. Remember Jesus said, you're about to be thrown into prison for 10 days. The devil's going to deliver you into prison. You know, endure to the point of death. I mean, that was the environment that they were in. Well, this is not just for uh, historical musing. What does that mean to you? What do we do with this information today? Well, I think we need to be wise. We learn that there is a direction that ungodly and unchecked governments will take when they reject the truth of Christ. That is where they go. Don't be mistaken about that. We also learn that the church is to not allow the sway of that darkness to take root in her bosom. Right? It's happening in the world, and you know what? It wants into the church. And the resisting of that darkness, we learn, may cost us. It may cost us dearly. And let me tell you this. If it doesn't cost us, if we're not willing to pay the price, then those who follow us, our descendants, through our negligence, they'll pay the price. And the price gets thicker. It gets deeper and it gets darker if we are not real willing to toe the line and really draw that thick line in the sand. And now we move to Jesus' critique. But I have a few things against you because you have there those who hold the doctrine of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the children of Israel, to eat things sacrificed to idols, and to commit sexual immorality. Thus, you also have those who hold the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, which thing I hate, repent, or I shall come to you quickly and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. There was a disease festering in Pergamus. Now, you know, I don't want to get too um, uncharitable here, but today we might call it religious liberalism. That's what was happening at Pergamos. It's not an outright denial of the faith. It is a perverting of the faith. It's easier to deal with, at least um, 
intellectually, it's easier to deal with people who just deny the faith. But those who pervert the faith, those who, these people weren't leaving the church. They were staying in the church and trying to change the church. You see, dark directions in the church begin with very small increments. What we learn here is the doctrine of Balaam had somehow entered into the church. Well, what's the doctrine of Balaam that he taught Balak? These are Old Testament examples we read in in Numbers. Just briefly, the story is this. That Balak, who was the king of Moab, who was an evil person, and they were the enemies of Israel, hired Balaam, who was a prophet of God, to curse Israel. You know, I mean, I'm like, all right, I, Israelites are getting a little too powerful. How much will it take for you to curse Israel? And Balaam's all on board. This is after the story of Balaam's donkey and all that stuff. Balaam's on board, but Balaam, though maybe not the most noble prophet, was still a prophet of God. And what he found was he couldn't do it. Not because he, not because he had personal convictions about not doing it. God simply would not allow him to curse Israel. And all he could do was bless Israel. And this happens a number of times, and Balak gets a little, you can imagine, gets frustrated because, you know, Balaam can't pull it off and so forth. Well, if you read it in the Old Testament, it seems to be the end of the story. Hey, Balaam can't do it. And you're like, all right, let's move on until you all of a sudden, seven chapters later, you see something that's not readily apparent in the story. And that is that Balaam gave Balak advice on how Israel could ruin themselves. I can't, curse you. I can't curse them, but I can tell you what you can do in order to get them to bring a curse upon themselves. And not to get again into the details, but it had to do with idolatry and women. Now that, interestingly enough, and you might be shocked at how many pagan religions involve actual sexual immorality. Like, that's part of the religious practice. And this is probably what was happening at Pergamos. They're in a city that is just full of pagan religion. They're not able to function. And so what they're hearing is, well, if you kind of get involved in this religious idolatry and you play the game of sexual immorality, you will now be able to buy and sell and function in society. And interestingly enough, apparently a lot of the people in the church were buying it. They were like, okay, well, if that's what it takes, you know, because we want to be a good witness, right? We'd have to reach out. We've got to be part of the culture. But Jesus is saying, no, this is, this is a critique against you. You're allowing the world to come in and influence your church. And by the way, they should have known better. It's not like they didn't know in the Jerusalem Council, in Acts chapter 15, when they're kind of going, look, we've got some very young, immature Christians. We don't want to lay a big burden upon them. What should we say? It includes the very things that we see here. Idolatry, sexual immorality. These are the two things. You know, there, there were five things, but these were two of those things where they're going, here's, what, here's all we're going to kind of lay on you at this point because you're really not ready for more. And yet they weren't even holding to that. So it wasn't as if they didn't know. They should have known better. There was a stumbling block. Interesting, I don't like to always bring in the Greek here, but I thought that word stumbling block, the Greek word, is where we get the word scandal. But the actual literal meaning of it, and you'll all understand this if you watched cartoons as a kid, it was actually the stick that you would put like in a box, under a box, and you'd put, like, bait in there, and when the animal would go in, you'd pull. It would either trip it or you'd pull the stick, and you'd trap the animal in the box. That's what they're talking about here, this idea that you're going to be trapped. People are going to come into your church, and they're going to trap you. We need to be mindful of these traps. I don't know. I, don't, I mean, I guess if somebody would say as a pastor, what would you like your congregation to take away from the many years that you've been their pastor? Well, I mean, I can think of a number of things, you know, that I'd like to see on that list. You know, faithfulness, godliness. But one of the things that I would really like to see in you is wisdom. For you to know when a trap is being set. For you to have the perception to go, that's a dangerous road. What you just said is, you may not even know it yourself, but what you just said is not coming from God, it's coming from somewhere else. And I'm simply not going to go down that path.
And let me tell you something else. These stumbling blocks, they generally hover over things like what constitutes a healthy sexual relationship. You see it all through the Bible. You see it all through history. There's also a blurring between the roles of men and women in life and in ministry. It's something that is happening in our culture right now in spades. This blurring that God has created men and women, and we're going to try to blur that as much as we possibly can. We, we read that in Romans chapter 1, but it is all through the course of Scripture. What is also, we talked about you know, um, committing idolatry, it also enters into what is acceptable worship? And what is unacceptable in the gathering that we have here right now? These are the things that the enemy really seems to put his crosshairs on. Sexual immorality due to our carnal nature and the way our carnal nature responds to worship. I remember doing a radio show years ago where I was asking people, it was live radio, asking people about um, how you pick a church. Like, what do you do to pick a church? Because I had read in a periodical that people will decide whether or not they want to stay at a church in the first six minutes that they visit the church. I'm like, wow, we better get some good greeters. The door there. But I started asking, how do you know that this is a spirit-filled church, a godly church, a biblical church? And I'm not to be mean-spirited about this, but I remember kind of writing all the answers, writing all the answers, writing all the answers, and got right down to it. My conclusion in this thesis was, a godly, spirit-driven church is one that has a good bass player. George says yes. You know, because the bass, right? It gets way in there. And you just feel it. You know, I just feel it, you know, especially when the music begins and so forth. Well, we need to kind of be able to see that when it's kind of making inroads into our into the church. I would advise you to walk through a Christian bookstore and see what the best-selling Christian books are and how sound they are. Go online and look at the top 10 Christian churches in America and see what they believe. We're, we're not in a good place in terms of allowing the world to influence the church. The church is to sanctify the world. The world is not to corrupt the church. And it is a continual battle that takes place. I recall speaking to a young man who was candidating to be a, um, a pastor in our denomination, and he was thinking about interning here at our church. And we got into a discussion, and I was kind of going, all right, you know, we'd love to have you as an intern. Let me tell you some of the things that are particular to our church, even within the denomination. And, and we got into the idea of six-day creation, six 24-hour sequential days. And his comment to me was, and I think he thought that I just grew up in a monastery or something, because he didn't think, I, he's like, well, you know, I've been out in the world, Pastor Paul, and I know what's up and all this stuff. And I'm like, he's like, I, he goes, I cannot, I will not be able to witness to my friends if I have such a naive understanding of the origins of the universe. See, his argument against sixth day of creation was not an exegetical argument. He wasn't going, well, biblically, this doesn't work. You know, let me tell you why it didn't work. I mean, I might have included that, but in his mind, I need to be able to engage my culture. My culture rejects six-day creation. Therefore, I reject it. Well, that's no way to approach your faith. You don't look at the world, put your finger in the air, and kind of go, well, the world's going this way, so I'm going to accommodate that. I'm not saying we should be insensitive to it. I'm not saying we should be mean-spirited about it. But they're not in charge. God is in charge. And what saith the Scripture needs to be the answer. Jesus is eventually going to be, in this passage, he's going to say, repent. Now, he's going he's to go, you need to repent. Now, he's talking to a church. We all know what repent means, right? It means change your mind. Well, let me ask you this question. About what? You know what the answer to that is? Everything. You change your mind about everything. You change your mind about where we're from. You change your mind about where we're going. You change your mind about why we're here. Right, wrong, your hope. You change your mind about the origins of the universe. You change your mind about the Word of God. And first and foremost, you change your mind about who Christ is in relationship to you. All of this by the grace of God. We, change, we are to change our minds about everything. We're, we're to be a new creature. Not a mildly altered creature. A completely different creature. And we'll get to that in just a second. 
what the church at Pergamos will find is that if they refuse to repent, they will be on the wrong side of the indignation of Christ. You, we, you need, as a church, to continually ask who your master is. He will fight against them, he says, with the sword of his mouth. That is, they will be judged by the truth of God's word. And they may find themselves not only on the wrong side of history, but if they don't repent, they will be on the wrong side of eternity because the word of God is eternal. Heaven and earth, we read, will pass away, but my words will by no means pass away. There's something eternal about the word of God because the word of God is the extension of the character and nature of God himself. We tend to separate these things. If I write something, I have what I wrote and I have me. And as you all know, there are typos, right? I, I left out the word not, okay? There are no typos with God. God is not saying one thing and going, oh, yeah, I, I, I misspoke. No, his word is infallible and inerrant and eternal and powerful, and the church ever must kneel before it. Not only that, the word of God needs to be preached against compromising churches. Jesus is saying, I'm coming against these people with the word of my mouth. You need to know the word of God well enough to know a compromising church when you see it. And all churches, and I'm writing, I wrote in my notes, yours included, and I I mean ours, must ever be willing to repent. Ever. We never think we've arrived. We must always be willing to be corrected. We won't speak about the Nicolaitans because we talked about that last week. I do want to say one last thing, though, that's not in my notes. Um, Because I think it's important to kind of take a look at the world in which we live, kind of understand what's going on in that world, and then be able to see it's showing up in the church. You You understand what I'm saying here? Like, this seems to really be the spirit of the age out there. To what extent am I hearing it from here? My wife and I, you know, like to watch shows, but it's so hard to watch a show, right? That's not profane. We don't, we're not looking for profound. We just want something that's not profane. So we started watching this show called, um, what was it called, honey? Um, God friended me. God friended me. And I'm like, oh, it's a show, you know, where this guy, got, you know, and I'm like, I, I realize it's going to probably be heretical, but at least it's not going to, you know, I mean, I, or at least, uh, you know, out of bounds or whatever, but at least it's not going to be dirty. So we start watching it. And as I'm watching it, I realize there's a pastor, he's about my age, and he's got a couple of kids, and one of them's an atheist, and the other one is a lesbian. So now I'm like, going, all right, where are they going to go with this? And he's struggling a little bit with it. And uh, what happens in this show, just for you to understand kind of where this goes, it's not as if the dad who's the pastor is seeking to, like, bring his children kind of lovingly and gently into line with the Word of God. What happens in the show is it's the dad who needs to be enlightened. It's the dad who needs to progress. And so the dad is kind of like, you know doing his son's podcast on atheism, and the daughter is going to a church now that the dad kind of thumbs up that is where the pastor's a female lesbian also. So we're watch, I'm watching this, and I'm like, all right, this show's kind of going off the rails for me a little bit. <laughs> but here's what hit me kind of hard. He's, he's the head of this council of pastors. And now all the pastors are liberals, right, except for one guy, the guy who I would play. Yeah. And I noticed the actor they picked for this role, because I recognize him from other roles. He is like the guy who, the moment he walks on the screen, you don't like him. Right? He's the curmudgeon. This old kind of, you know, and it's like, and they're in a meeting, and he goes, you know what, I just, I I can't go down this road with you because, you know, you've kind of sanctioned your son's position, your daughter's position. I just don't see that it's right. Of course, he doesn't say it nicely, right, because he's the bad guy. He says it meanly. Now there's this episode where the head guy has to decide, what am I going to do with the curmudgeon? What, what do we do with Pastor Paul? Right? 
because I'm starting to take it kind of personal, right? Well, here's where this show goes. The brave and noble thing that all the viewers were to recognize to be courageous was we're going to have a meeting and your services are no longer needed. You're kicked off our council. We're not going to, the, the show never discusses the scriptures. There's no, what does the Bible say? None of this. You are out. He gets up all mad and grumpy, walks out, and all of the other progressive, enlightened, liberal pastors look at each other, and it's supposed to be a moment where in our hearts we're tickled. They're all like, you know, and you can see the camera going around. It's like, finally, we can get something done. Because in our church council, we've got rid of the one Christian. (laughs) But I'm looking at that, thinking to myself, who's buying this? I mean, who, who doesn't see this? And let me tell you, a lot of people don't see it. And we need to be aware of that in the world in which we live. Well, finally, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him overcomes, I will give some of the hidden manna to eat, and I will give him a white stone, and on the stone a new name written, which no one knows except him who receives it. So once again, and we, again, we see this over and over and over, and uh, when we get into chapters 4 through 18, let me tell you, I think it's a big mistake for people to say the church is gone, the church is raptured, the church is out of here. They are being prepared for chapters 4 through 18 in these letters. And they are called to persevere, and to overcome as this takes place. Let them hear. And just in case you don't know what that means, hear means not just audibly to hear, right? It means to obey. It means you make it yours. It's like when you talk to your kids and you say, are you listening to me? And they're like, yeah, I'm listening. And that's, that's not what I mean. I mean, are you, obey, are you listening to the extent where you're going to obey what I'm about to say? We are to hear the Spirit of God, rather than the world by which we are surrounded. Let me tell you, maybe you think, well, you know, I'm, I'm, a, I'm outside of all this. You're hearing something. You're either going to hear the Word of God or you're going to hear the world. And as we already have established, the world is governed by the evil one, the ways of the world. There is a line in the sand, and you can't serve two masters. You're going to pick one or you're going to pick the other. Well, hidden manna is likely referring to Christ himself. It is, I think, difficult for us. Most of us were not raised in Jewish households. Um, And I think when Paul says, when the Jews come to faith, it's going to be like a resurrection. I do. I mean, when I, I think to myself, if somebody like a Dennis Prager or a Ben Shapiro came to faith in Christ, what they could contribute in terms of their understanding of the Old Testament... I read this and I think, I don't think we can grasp the magnitude of the statement when in John chapter 6, Jesus is talking about the manna, right? Which to the Israelite meant sustenance. It meant life. Without the manna, without those loaves, you were dead in the wilderness. I mean, if you were from a Jewish household, you would recognize the depth and the profound nature of talking about manna. But it's in the midst of those statements about manna that Jesus says this in John 6, 41, I am the bread which came down from heaven. Now, we look at that and we're like, well, yeah, I hear that all the time. But no, no, these are the kind of words that made them want to kill Jesus or believe in Jesus. There was no real indifference to Christ, just like truth itself. Truly, the Old Testament, as Jesus said, is about him. What's this white stone? Well, that's a tough one because, you know, you don't really see it anywhere else in Scripture. History tells us that the white stone was actually a ticket necessary to enter into the festivals and the banquets of the pagan god. So if you wanted to participate in that culture and you had to bow the knee to Caesar and you wanted to kind of do all the things necessary to be part of that culture, a white stone was the way you got in to whatever the event was. Now that, again, I'm telling you, we learned that from history. That's not in the text, so it may or may not be the case. But if that is the case, it would be Jesus' way of conveying to them that there's another banquet. There's another ticket. It's, It's not the pagan banquet. It's the marriage supper of the Lamb. And you will have a ticket to that. Now, it could be that, 
Or some people think that it might be the manna, a reference back to the manna itself, because the manna looked like a, like a white stone. I don't know which it is. I'm just telling you the, the, the couple of things that are out there. But I do know this. It is either the world or Christ. I mean, he says it, right? You can't serve two masters. And it's not like you're going to love one and be indifferent to the other. What does he say? You're going to love one and you're going to hate the other. I mean, that's, the word, that's where this goes. Finally, he talks about a new name. In the Semitic culture, the name of a person characterized the person, right? We make jokes about it. You know, if you name your kid Jeeves, You've pretty much planned out his career, And so uh, in the Bible, right, Saul became Paul, Simon became Peter, and these types of, where the name kind of tells you about the character or the nature of the person. What we see here is that you're going to have a new name. You're going to have a new name because you're going to be a new creature. You have a new identity. Your identity is in Christ. And it is a name known only to God and to you. This is um, very, very personal. It's very intimate. I mean, more intimate than you can imagine, right? Because we might yell out, hey, Bill, John, Debbie, Kathy, and any number of people may turn around. Even if you try to come up with some creative name, somebody else has that name. But here, when this name is uttered, only you will turn around. It's a name that belongs to you. It made me think of John chapter 10, verse 27, when Jesus says, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. Well, he who has an ear, let him hear. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we do pray that you would help us to be mindful of the stumbling blocks that are brought into our church. We pray for churches throughout the world that they would be wise, that they would know the word of God to such an extent that counterfeits would be easily seen. And we do pray, Father, that once seeing these counterfeits, once being made aware of the stumbling blocks, that you would fill our hearts with the convictions necessary to walk and repent and to ever seek to glorify your name and bring the redemptive message to a world in desperate need of it. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.